Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Thank you. My name is Santiago, and I'm an alcoholic. How is everybody? All right. All right. I love that. Okay. So uh, I was told or I heard that um, it's a good thing to thank everybody who has helped you along the way. So I want to thank some people who helped me get here. Uh, I want to thank uh, Michael Kay and I want to thank Rick and I want to thank uh, Ron and I want to thank Chuck, and I want to thank Don and everybody else uh, who supports this meeting, because I couldn't be out, I couldn't be here without you. And so uh, I consider uh, you doing a twelve step on me, because you got me here, and uh, and I appreciate that very very much. I was uh, I was told. To be thankful for the immediate, and that's, that was the most immediate that I can think of, other than I got to go to the bathroom a little while ago. Uh, I, uh, I was told to, uh, if I ever had the opportunity to uh, speak at a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, that I remember that what I was really doing was sharing my experience, strength, and hope. I was also told to tell the truth. And every time I get uh, to do this, you know, I always say, you know, I'm really, really going to try my best to, to tell the truth. But I can't promise that I, w- that I will, because I have a, as you'll see as the evening progresses, and they told me to speak 60 minutes to 65 minutes, so you're going to get to hear a whole lot of stuff. You'll see that, I, that uh, uh it's beyond my enthusiasm for Alcoholics Anonymous and for life is beyond my control, and sometimes I may exaggerate. But uh, I did not go to Harvard. I, I did go there and speak, but I didn't attend Harvard. And I like to say I went there. Hey, I went to Harvard. Uh, I went to the White House, too. But uh, anyway, so to tell the truth, uh, to take a shower or a bath that day, to wear a tie, to wear a coat, and uh, so I'm doing what I was told and what I was heard, uh, what I heard. So uh, what it was like, I can I can sum it up in three words. What it was like was it was uh, trauma, drama, and more trauma. That's what it was like. What happened, I'm going to spend a lot of time talking about what happened. And I'm going to spend a lot of time sharing about, you know, what it's like now. What it's like now is that I can see you. And I believe that you can see me. And I believe in my heart and in my mind and all my being that we're all united. That we are connected. I have never been anywhere in the world 
in the most holy of places that I've visited in my, in my lifetime. I've been blessed to visit these holy places. I've never been at a holier place than at a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. Never. And so, what it was like. Uh, it all started <laughs> in Guchipila, Zacatecas, and by the Topia Durango, places that I'm sure you're all very familiar with. Uh, they're somewhere in central Mexico. That's where my mom and my dad came from, to this country. And uh, my mother said to me that, uh, that she had her first child, my sister Nellie, when she was 14. And I was the seventh child out of ten deliveries that she had. And I was born in 1945. So I had these three brothers and sisters who, some were World War II people, some were Korea people, and then I'm Vietnam. So I had this really incredible, you know, family. But my mother said to me, she says, you know, mijo, which means son, my son in Spanish, she goes, mijo, you know, I really had to suffer a lot for you to be born. I mean, a lot. <laughs> yeah, I'm like two and a half years old. <laughs> That's traumatic, you know. And then she proceeds to tell me, and you would have died. If I hadn't drank this bottle of wine, every day I drank a bottle of wine, because I had to stay in bed for six months, and so I drank a bottle of wine every day so you could live. <laughs> so I, I think I was born with a hangover. You know, I think I got a little buzz in there. You know, that little oven, I think I got a little buzz. And I think when I was born, I was, uh, you know, I was hungover, man. And I was looking for a cure. And so I grew up in this little town called Anaheim, California, in a little barrio called La Conga. And it was, as far as I was concerned, the first five and a half years of my life, I was in Mexico. Not very many people spoke English, and, uh, you know, that's, that's where I grew up. We, it was kind of a, what we call an upper-class barrio, uh, because you know, it was La Conga. La Conga means, a, you know, a dance. And the other barrio was called La Chanclamiada. And what that means in English, it means the pissed shoe. <laughs> so I'd rather be from La Conga than from a pissed shoe. So I always thought I was upper-class until I went to school and I saw where all the white people lived and all of a sudden I realized I had nothing, you know. We didn't have a shower, we didn't have a bathtub. The first time I went to, to visit somebody's house and I was in kindergarten or first grade and I went to one of those houses, I thought I had, I mean, I thought I was in another world. And that's, that was a difference. And I saw that difference right away, you know. Not only did I see it as far as socioeconomic status is concerned, I saw it within my own family. All my brothers and sisters were white. They were widows. White. And I thought I was black. My mother said, don't you go out there in that sun, you're going to get blacker. And so I thought, I'm black. And, uh, and don't you smile either, because when you smile, your nose gets really big like your papa. So when I'm like five years old, man, I'm afraid to smile. So, you know, I started drinking when I was eight years old. My first drink it was a bottle of white satin wine. 
It was awful. But the second one wasn't too bad. And the third, ay, mamacita. You know, eight years old, I was a child. Eleven years old. Eleven years old, and uh, I've been arrested three or four times. I've been handcuffed. I don't know how they handcuffed me. My hands must have been really tiny, but they handcuffed me. Fullerton Police Department, Anaheim Police Department, Santa Ana Police Department. And when I was 11 years old, I ended up in a tank in Santa Ana, Santana. And uh, my buddies, the five guys that I got busted with, they were gone, and they left me in that tank in the dark. There was no light. Uh, I don't know what time it was, around 11, 10. My mom and dad picked me up. And, uh, you know, we had drank that day. We had smoked pot that day. I used to hang around with these vatos, and, uh, which means dudes in English, you know. We used to wear these khaki pants, and we used to wear them up real high, kind of like the Filipinos used to wear them back in those days, you know, real high. And a sir guy shirt, button it up here, you know, walk around and stand around like this, you know. <laughs> and we wouldn't move. Even, even your shirts got caught in your butt, you still like, orale, you know. <laughs> Eleven years old. The leader of the gang was 16, and by the time I was 11, my buddies, my little gang, we were called the Midnight Bandits, uh, we were in a vacant, vacated house, and they were getting ready to shoot up heroin, and I wanted to do it, you know, I was 11 years old, man, I was like, man, I want to do it, I want to do it. No, no, you're not going to do it, man, because if you do it, my, your brother will kill me. The leader of the gang said that I couldn't do it. Well, thank God for that. Uh, at my 11th birthday, uh, I got arrested one more time. I came home, and my father, who uh, was an alcoholic and a great man, he was a hardworking man. He was 50 years old when I was born. Um, uh, you know, he told me to go to bed. I slept on the, on the floor on a, I don't know, a quilt, I guess, and a blanket. You know, that's where I slept. And this house that we lived in was, it was like one room. Uh, and, uh, he told me, uh, you know, to go to sleep. And they went to bed, they turned the lights off, and I thought, man, he's gonna get up in the middle of the night and he's gonna just kick me, he's gonna start kicking me. Now, my father never kicked me. He hit me with a belt. Uh, but he never, he never kicked me, slapped me one time. Uh, and I thought he was going to, you know, he was going to beat me up. And so I said, I'm not going to go to sleep. And I should, as soon as I go to sleep, I'm going to run away, which I had done three or four times already. And, uh, but he didn't, you know, he didn't, nothing happened. And I fell asleep and around, I don't know, it was dark still. He, he woke me up and he took me to the, where the kitchen was and, he said to me, and to me he was a giant, you know, he said to me, mijo, I'm done with you. I am done with you. I want nothing to do with you. I wash my hands. Yeah, basta. You do what you want to do. Your brothers in San Quentin, State Penitentiary, and if you want to end up there, that's fine, but I do not care about you anymore. And I wanted to kill him. 
I, I wanted to, I mean, I wanted to kill him, but I, I didn't under, I mean, I didn't understand what was going on inside me, but I wanted to kill him. And, you know, of course, you know, minutes later I go, oh, good, man, he's not going to hit me. He's not going to hit me anymore. This is great. But it wasn't great. I was shattered. And what happened is I changed my life. I got jumped out of the gang. I got beat up, sent with God, with the blessings of a few guys that were not locked up. And, uh, you know, and I became an American. I thought, you know, I'm going to learn how to walk like those people. Maybe not as enthusiastic as, you know, like this. Just walk a little bit, you know, a little bit more, a little bit more stiff. I'm going to learn how to say church instead of shush. I'm going to learn how to speak this language the way it's supposed to be spoken. And I'd look in the mirror and I'd, you know, I'd practice and, and so on and so forth. And I never stopped drinking and I never stopped smoking pot, but I never did it with anybody except family. And I had plenty of family that had plenty of alcohol and plenty of marijuana. Mota. But not with anybody else. And so I, you know, I, I became an American. And, uh, my name was Jim. My friends call me Jim or Jimmy. And, uh, you know, it was cool. I, um, got to high school and, and, um, I played football and track. I lettered in all, in those two sports. I got involved in the theater when I was 13, which was a blessing, which helped me to learn to speak English, you know, better. I, um, I won Best Supporting Actor in Orange County and uh, two years in a row and Best Actor in my senior year. I got elected student body president. I got 80% of the votes, and I was vomiting blood in the mornings. I couldn't stop drinking. I had no idea why I, I drank, because every time I drank, I would get violently sick. And I'm one of those, one of those alcoholics, and I, my home group is the Munchies Men's Stag in, in, in Dana Point, and it's about, I don't know, a hundred guys, and it's loud, and they're rowdy, and they, and 80% of them had a blast drinking. I mean, they had a blast. I did not have a blast drinking. I drank, and then I, I couldn't stop drinking. I drank as fast and as much as I possibly could every time I drank alcohol. And every time I drank alcohol, it resulted in the same thing. And so I graduated from high school. Uh, I left home when I was 16 because I wanted to do what I wanted to do. I rented a room for $25 a month uh, and went to school and, and, and did well. And, and, and uh, I didn't drink every day. I was a periodic. I, I don't think I... I probably drank maybe, I don't even think I drank during football season. I think I was so dedicated to football that I didn't drink during, during football season. I know we drank a lot after, and I didn't, and I drank during track season. But uh, I graduated from high school, and I went to uh, Fullerton College. I had, I had no plans of going to college. Nobody suggested that I go to college. But one of my older friends uh, that I worked with at the cleaners where I worked at, uh, went to college, so I thought it'd be a good idea for me to go. So I did. And of course, right away, I got elected to an office 
a student office. I always had to have a title. I always had to have something, you know, that was like a driver's license to belong, to be a part in some way. And so I uh, went to Fulham, to the junior college, and and um, and then it got worse. I started drinking more often, and by the end of the semester, I was on pro- academic probation, and I got off academic probation the following semester, and then once again the next semester I was on academic probation again. Uh, and during that time, I met a uh, a young lady at at uh, at a dance, and. Um, we were dancing, and afterwards we went outside, you know, to talk, and she called me a suato, which in Spanish means an idiot. And I fell in love with her. <laughs> I mean, I just went, wow, this is... I really did. I fell in love with her. I loved that she was beautiful. I loved that she spoke Spanish. I had never... I'd never really dated girls that were of Mexican descent. I always dated girls that were not of Mexican descent. And at that time, in that era, in the school that I went to, in the town that I grew up in, Mexicans could not really date non-Mexicans. I thought if I got, that's why I ran for student body president. I thought, you know, maybe if I become student body president, you know, they'll let me take their daughters out. But no, no way. <laughs> no way, Jose. I thought, I, I thought maybe I changed my name from Estrada to Estralati. You know, I can be Italian. You know, give me a break. <laughs> but no break. Uh, so, you know, my friends would pick up my, my steady girlfriend and, you know, bring her to me. And then we'd go out. And, and that's the way it worked. But, uh, but anyway, uh, so I met this. So in junior college, you know, I, I, I met my, my to-be wife. Uh, we, uh, I, I saw her every day. I saw her every day from that day I saw her. I saw her every day until I went in the Navy. Uh, we got pregnant before we got married. Um, and we got married three months after, after we found out, uh, that, that we were pregnant. And it was a frightening time. And, uh, but it was a wonderful time too. I was, you know, I was terrified. And at the same time, I was, I was happy. Uh, I wish I could tell you that I I knew at that time uh, what love was, but I, I didn't. I didn't really know what love was till I had been in Alcoholics Anonymous for over 10 years. I really didn't know it. Like you know when you taste a good apple and you bite into it and you know this is a good apple. I didn't have the capacity uh, to feel love, but I... But I knew I had, I lusted for her and I thought I loved her. I thought I adored her. So we got married. And, uh, and then I, uh, got activated. I joined the Naval Reserve. I got activated and I went to, uh, Vietnam, uh, in October of 1967 on a destroyer called the USS Higby. We just we were talking about that before the meeting, and, and anyway, so I went. We went to Vietnam, and uh, we served in North Vietnam, and and uh, I had a great job. I was a ship store operator, so I had the keys to all the Coke machine. Uh, it was a Coke. It was a Coke machine, and then I had the keys to the storeroom where all the booze was. And every guy got to bring, I think, a gallon of booze home, and I had the keys. 
Orale! <laughs> yeah, it was, it was incredible, you know, it was just, I mean, we were just, we were just, and these guys that were like regular Navy, the guys that were going to be in there for their whole life, I mean, the guy that was the main dealer was like, had been in the Navy for 12 years, and him and I got to be best friends, and so we were getting loaded all the time, there was alcohol, there was grass, there was speed, there was everything, you know, that you can imagine, and, uh, and finally, what happened in, in that, on that, which is significant to me, is that there was a time when somebody got in trouble. They got busted for drinking, and uh, it was in our department, and they, they pulled the whole department in the fantail, and they called this man out, and they called him an alcoholic. And we called him Pops. He was like 45 years old. You know, he was really old compared to being 20 or 18 or 19. And they called him an alcoholic. And I said to my buddy next to me, I said, Pops can't be an alcoholic, man. If he's an alcoholic, I'm an alcoholic. And he said, you should check it out, I said. And I thought, no, no way. I, I'm, I'm not an alcoholic. Wow. So I got out of the Navy, came back home. We had a beautiful daughter. I was hired by the Orange County Probation Department. Within months, I was a, a, a counselor in a, in a, a juvenile home. I was going to college uh, full-time and working full-time, and I was learning a wonderful profession that I loved, but I could not control this drinking, and I wanted to. I mean, I started wanting to control it when I was a junior in high school. I would say, you know, why do I keep doing this? But I kept doing it. And so what happened is this, is that... Uh, my wife and I uh, went to this party, a small party, and I drank something called Tanqueray, which I had never drank before. And I drank a lot of Tanqueray, a lot. And I got, we got home. She went to sleep, and I started having these like auditory hallucinations, part visual hallucination too. And she had red hair. She was beautiful. I could see her green eyes. And she was saying, Santiago, where are you? I said, here I am. And I walked out the door and I started looking for her and looking in people's windows <laughs> to see if I could find her. And, you know, finally I thought I did. And so I just walked in. I don't know if I said, here I'm here, but I know there was two of them in there. And it didn't take long for them to beat me up. I mean, it, I was, I could barely walk. So they beat me up, called the cops. The cops took me to jail. I'm in jail and I'm running around like a lunatic, you know. Viva la revolucion! Viva, viva los chicanos! Viva this! Viva that! You know? And I was just going crazy. You know, we're going to take back California. We're going to take back Arizona. Or we're going to take back Disneyland. You know, we're going to take it all back. And, you know, I got, uh, I got bailed out. Uh, it's, it's funny. I mean, it's, uh, I got bailed out. It was, it was $15. And all, and all they would accept is cash. So my friend bailed me out 15 bucks. I got out of Anaheim jail. Went back to work, the probation department. Like everything was cool. Two days later, the knock on the door, it's two detectives. And they say, Mr. Estrada, we're here to arrest you. And I said, I beg your pardon? And they said, uh, one of your neighbors filed a complaint. Evidently, you trespassed, and uh, we got to take you in. 
And I hadn't been, I, I forgot to tell you this part. I, I, I had stopped drinking because the lawyer said you can't drink, you know, until this matter is settled. So I actually stopped drinking. And so, so I'm kind of sober, you know, and <laughs> I'm kind of like, oh man. So they, they arrest me, they take me in the police car, they put me in the cell. And when I'm driving in, another car is driving out, and one of the kids from juvenile hall, that I, one of the kids that had been arrested was, that, that was in the institution was in the car. And so I went down, I didn't want him to see me. I went, you know, I went in, they arrested me, and one more time I got bailed out. One more time. I got put in jail in the Navy three or four times. One more time, I got I got a break. And so uh, I went back to work. It was my last semester uh, before graduating. And one more time, uh, I went out. And I, I don't know what happened. I didn't go home. I woke up in my car, and it was like 4, four or 5 in the morning. And... Uh, I ended up uh, going and getting some breakfast, washing up in the bathroom there, and then going to work, and I was still really drunk. I was still really drunk, and I walked into the institution. I was a little bit late, and I could, I guess I was having a hard time walking, and two of the residents uh, were out, came out for some reason, and they took me. I had my keys on my belt, I guess. They took me and they locked me up in a cell. These are the inmates. They locked me up in a cell. And they went and told my boss, you know, Mr. Estrada is uh, really drunk, evidently. And so I woke up like at noon or 1 o'clock in the afternoon. You know, that was 7 in the morning when they put me in there. And I never got in trouble. My boss just... You know, I drank with him. I used with him. And I, I didn't get fired. They knew that I, got, that I had gotten arrested, but my boss, who was a Marine, and all, most of the staff had served in Vietnam, and our, 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 uh, our CO was a retired colonel in the Marines, and so, you know, I got a pass. So I started thinking, I got to get the hell out of, out, of, out of California. You know, man, this is bad luck. I just have bad luck. And out of nowhere... I get a letter from Pullman, Washington, Washington State University. I get a letter. I don't know anything about Washington. I've never been further north than San Francisco in my life. I have no idea what that's like, but I get this letter. And I tell you, I, I mean, I'm re I'm, I look back on that now and I see, you know, I mean, I, I was mentally ill. I can, I can look at it now and I can see... I think I would have qualified for mental illness and maybe some other things. And so I got the job. I came down in an airplane. I got I interviewed. I they offered they gave me the job at Washington State University to be a a counselor. I had a bachelor's degree in sociology, but the probation work you know counted for a lot and being a vet counted a lot and and also being of Mexican descent counted a lot. And uh, they, they could not find anybody who spoke Spanish that would move to Pullman, Washington and take, accept a job <laughs> with master's degrees and PhDs. And, you know, I got the job. I thought, man, this is awesome. Yeah, this is great. And by that time, we had a son, and we came to Pullman, Washington, and we were driving like 
So Lewiston, and you go up this this mountain, look like it looked like Hiroshima or someplace, man, like a, like a atom bomb had dropped on it. And we got up there. Then we went through the Palouse, and I thought we were like in Mars or some other planet. And then we got to Pullman, and uh, it was shocking. <laughs> I remember some guy stopped me. I'd only been there like a week, and some big, big guy stopped me, big white guy, and he goes, what kind of Indian are you, boy? <laughs> and I said, Zacatecano. So he goes, I never heard of them. He goes, well, we're the cousins of the Aztecs. <laughs> I never heard of them. We heard of the Nespers. I go, I never heard of them. <laughs> it was wonderful. It was really wonderful to come to Washington. Looking back on it now, you know, to be there and to work uh, with these, it was nothing but migrant kids. Eighty percent of the kids I worked with were migrant kids who picked hops here in Washington and lived in Yakima and places like that. And I mean, to be there and to be a, to be an instructor, to be a counselor, to I, to to do the things that I did uh, was wonderful. In the process, though, my disease got worse and worse. I got arrested again. And finally, uh, what happened uh, is that I, uh, I got my master's degree. I graduated with honors. Uh, and uh, around, that, around that point in time, we went home to visit our family. And my, my wife, at that time, the mother of my children, uh, for some reason said something to me and we were in the garage, and she said something to me, and I went up to her, and I spit in her face. And I can't really remember that, but I remember, what I can remember is that these both families, there was like 40, 50 people at this party, were going to get in a big fight. And uh, my brother Victor just took me, and we went, we left. And, you know, and that's what happened. And then we drove from, from Orange, you know, California back to Pullman. And my wife said to me when we got in the car to come back here, she said, I don't want you to talk to me. I don't want you to say anything to me. I just want you to know one thing. I have lost all respect for you. I do not respect you. And I don't want to say anything else to you just don't talk to me. So we drove from there to here. I smoked. You know, I mean, I was always smoking and I was always drinking and smoking, you know, dope and other stuff. And, and it was just quiet, you know. And then like three weeks later, she woke up or woke me up and she said, you have to leave this house and you have to leave this family because I don't respect you, I don't love you, and I don't want you near me. So I said, okay. And uh, by that time, I had accepted a position at the University of Idaho, which is in Moscow, which is about eight miles away. And so I went to work there, and, and, uh, and eventually we got divorced. I got arrested again, and I lost my license. And I thought I was... Uh, I thought I was done, you know, I thought I was, I didn't think I could, I don't, I didn't think I could keep living. I, I didn't know what to do. And I just kept going further down and further down 
In the process, I finished my coursework for my doctorate. I passed my comprehensive examinations. I was speaking all over the United States. I was, I got on a television show in Spokane. Uh, and, uh, I talked to somebody. I don't know how I got on that television show, but I got on this, they invited me to the television show. And I told somebody that I had written a book. And so I, I had, to, and the title was Contemporary Curandarismo, which means Contemporary Folk Psychiatry. I went on television selling this book. It had a beautiful cover, and it was about this thick, and I'm like showing it and talking about it and everything, and there was no pages in it. There was no, nothing had been written. I was insane. I mean, I was, I was getting people out of the state penitentiary. I had a, a release program for people out of, to get them out of Walla Walla State Penitentiary. And they, they 12 step, I mean, they 12 step me and did an intervention. I ended up being called by the warden to go to the death row. And I went up to death row to talk to this prisoner. And, you know, he said, you know what I said? You gotta clean it up. <laughs> I mean, you're the only Chicano we know who can even, you know, you, you're like a pinch, you got a master's degree, man. And you're worse than we are. You scare us. You know, I mean, he, that's, that was it. That was it. And so, finally, um, something happened. It was just remarkable. What happened is that I was desperate, and so I asked this guy. Somebody had told me this guy had was an alcoholic, and... Uh, so I went up to this guy and I said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about doing my dissertation on alcoholism. And somebody told me that you knew something about that. And this guy, in public, I mean, we're, there were students all over the place. He goes, oh yeah, my name is Bill and I'm an alcoholic. I mean, he said it loud. I said like, oh, wow, man. Uh, yeah, I said, well, what can you tell me about it? He goes, well, I can tell you one thing, Alcoholics Anonymous in my opinion, is the only answer for alcoholism. I said, what's that, Alcoholism, Alcoholics Anonymous? He goes, it's, he goes, it's where you go get sober. It's a, that's where the solution is to the problem. He goes, and it's a place where you're going to go, and you'll never be alone. And when you get sober, you don't have to do it alone. And I thought, this guy lacks social skills. <laughs> and I got arrested again. And out of nowhere, one day, out of nowhere, one day, I get a call. I'm in the, I'm in the university. I'm, I'm actually teaching a class. Somebody comes into the class and says, there's a man dying in the hospital, and they want you there immediately. He's asking for Santiago Carreño Estrada. I thought, God, not, nobody knows my middle name. Carreño, that's my mother's maiden name. No, that's it, Santiago Carreño Estrada. Nobody knows that. And so I go to the hospital. There's a man who looks like he's dead. He's on the sheet over this body. And so like I walk up and I go, Señor, Señor, nothing. And all of a sudden, all the sheets go up and this guy jumps out of the bed. And he goes, Cabeza de pollo! Cabeza de pollo! Which means you got a brain of a chicken. <laughs> That's what he was saying to me. Cabeza de pollo! I said, I said, who are you? 
And he says, I'm here to save your life, Señor. And the short story is he stayed there two days. I had an afro. It was like this. It was my hair when I was younger. It was really curly. I had this big afro. I had a big goatee. You know, I was all militant. <laughs> Working for the state. I was a state employee. <laughs> and he stayed there with me for two days. I got my hair cut. I got my everything trimmed up. I don't, I don't remember whether I stopped drinking or not, but I think I did for a couple of days that so he was there. He gave me all kinds of different stuff to eat, and he told me, you have to leave Idaho within a year or you're going to die. If you don't stop drinking and using drugs, you're going to die. I promise you're going to die. I said, who are you? He says, I'm your savior. That's all you need to know. Now, I thought, after I got sober, I thought, I wonder if this really happened, right? <laughs> trauma, drama, trauma, trauma, drama. I asked my son, and he remembered the man. His name was Don Gregorio. Magical realism, man. So I started looking for a job away from Washington. Man, and I got a opportunity at Stanford. I got an opportunity at University of California, Irvine. You know, I'm 31 years old. <laughs> and, I, and I'm interviewing at Stanford, man. I can be, you know, it, it trips me to this day. I, you know, and I was, I was smoking dope. I was smoking dope on the airplane on the way to Stanford. But I could interview, you know, three days of interviews and I could, you know, I could bullshit I never should have learned the English language. I mean, that was just, you know. <laughs> so I took the job, of course, at Irvine, because that's where my, my mom was, my family, everybody. I'm from Orange County. You know, I went back. I mean, that's where I was going to go back to. Uh, during that, two things that I forgot. One, the two things I forgot to mention. And I'm just going to just to check myself, because I'm a little bit... Uh, I want to get done here like about 8 o'clock or 8.15 Eight o'clock? Eight Because they said 60 or 65 minutes, but I really kind of lost my, my uh, time orientation here, so I'm figuring eight o'clock. Okay, so I want to get sober quickly. <laughs> so what happened then is, uh, uh, what I forgot to mention is this. This is very emotional for me to be here, uh, because Washington, I could start crying if I let myself really get into what Washington State means to me. Because Washington State gave me an opportunity that I could never repay. And I have a, I, there's things that I do for the state of Washington, particularly migrants, uh, who, who work in agriculture because my, my father was an orange picker. I grew up picking oranges and, and he was a migrant. And so there's that, but there's also just the state of Washington. And so I called Alcoholics Anonymous once here in Seattle. I came here to, to the University of Washington for some business and I ended up calling AA and I hung up on them. So I don't want to forget to mention that because I, because I talked to that guy, that Bill guy, that man, carried the message of Alcoholics Anonymous to me. So I called Alcoholics Anonymous here in Seattle, but I hung up the phone. And so now it's 1977, and uh, 
1977, and I'm interviewing at UCI, and I call Alcoholics Anonymous again, and this time I answer, like, you know, I talk to the person, and they sent a man to take me to a meeting, and that was August 16th, 1976. He took me to a meeting. His name is Bill. He's passed away now, and he had gave me permission to say his name before he passed away. He, he died with 54 years of sobriety, and he took me to my first meeting. He bought me my big book, and he was my, my spiritual advisor till the day he died. I stayed sober for six months, and then somebody said something about there's nothing in the big book about smoking grass, so I started smoking grass again. And uh, on the way back to California to go to live, out of nowhere I have this thought, I have never drank whiskey and buttermilk. <laughs> now some of you know where that comes from, I think. I never drink whiskey and buttermilk. So I stopped at a bar and I ordered some whiskey and buttermilk. And I got crazy drunk and I called Alcoholics Anonymous again and somebody came to my hotel in Paso Robles, California and 12-stepped me and my birthday is March 23rd, 1977. I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I took the steps out of the big book I wrote my fourth step three or four different times because I kept getting F's every time I would hand it in. <laughs> and they kept telling me to do it again. And so I kept doing it again until I found somebody that passed me. I didn't go back to the same person after I got flunked twice. So, you know, here I am. Uh, I uh, went to meetings every day, Saturday and Sunday. I... Uh, I ended up in this group of people, you know, that was just an incredible people. Uh, at six months, I, I, uh, my wife and I were going to get married again. And my, at six months, uh, she told me, she was here in Washington finishing up her bachelor's in child development. And she told me that she did not, she was not going to marry me again, that she was in love with another man and that she was sorry, but it was not going to work out. And I wanted to drink. And so, I called somebody up on the phone. They came and talked to me, and then they said, you know what, we better take you to talk to Johnny A. So we went up and talked to Johnny A, who's passed away, and then they took me. Then Johnny A said, you know what, we better take you to the top of the hill and you talk to Chuck C. I, I knew who Chuck C was because I went to the Wednesday night speakers meeting, and he played a big part in my sobriety. And so I went up there and started to talk, and then Chuck says, I think you just better listen. And so he talked for about two and a half hours, and I listened. And I knew that I wanted what he had, because he was the man that I had heard when I had like about two or three weeks from the podium. And what I remember him saying was, I'm an infinite child, infinite child on an infinite journey with an infinite father. And I remember that. And I remember that, and I thought, I'm home. You know, at that moment, at that instant, I felt something I had never felt before. I felt it inside of me, and it was real. And I didn't have to drink that day. It was just that day. 
I didn't have to drink. My heart had been broken. My brain was shattered. I was going a thousand different directions, and I didn't have to drink. And for the next 10 years, I didn't drink. I was insane. I mean, I, I, I had lots of mental problems, lots of trauma. Not imagine real trauma had occurred to me in my body and in my mind in a lot of different ways. I've written three books trying to deal with that trauma. And by the grace of God and by the grace of Alcoholics Anonymous, my life has continued. Uh, I married a wonderful woman who is a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. She has 38 years of sobriety. I say to people, I walk in her shadow, you know, because she has so much light. She was, I had a really dear friend of mine, Pablo Valenzuela, he's passed away, and he died of Lou Gehrig's disease, and he was like her. There, there's these people who just seem to be born, and they just practicing these principles on all their affairs, it just seems like they're doing layups, you know. For me, I'm always doing three points, you know, trying to practice these principles in all my affairs. It's, it, it, it has taken all of my life, the, all these 41 years and 11 months and two weeks and three days, you know, for me to be able to develop that, to develop that. Uh, I have dedicated my life uh, to Alcoholics Anonymous. How could I not? How could I not dedicate my life to my life? I breathe, and I can stand here before you, tired and feeling a little old and not really sure, you know, should I stop at 8 or 8.05, <laughs> because of Alcoholics Anonymous. What I know is this, and I truly know this, is, is like I know it's my name. My name is Santiago Carreño Estrada. I know that, and I love my name, and I love my mother and my father and, and my, my country and my ancestry. I, I just am, you know, divinely inspired by my life. I know this, that I am nothing but spirit. And everything else, it, it's an illusion. It's an illusion. My ego will tell me and will fight just like life. When I leave this earth and my body starts to shut down, life will, f life will fight for itself. Because life is meant to live. But the problem is that life is aware of itself. The subject, what I experience in here and what I experience out here, the observer and the observed, the root of all of that is consciousness. It's what you're experiencing and I'm experiencing right now. You're here with me. I'm here with you to stay sober. And so what I know is that what I am is spirit. That's what I have learned in Alcoholics Anonymous. But my job in this body 
and this bucket of guacamole <laughs> because I have this body and I have this brain and I have these thoughts and these feelings and these ideas. I have to be an active member of Alcoholics Anonymous to live one day at a time and be physically sober, mentally sober, emotionally sober, and morally sober. An old-timer used to say, you know, first you get into the ballpark, then you get up to bat, you get that hit, you get on first base, you got physical sobriety. Get to second base, you got mental sobriety. You get to third base, you got emotional sobriety. You get home, you got moral sobriety. And then you do it all over again next day. One day at a time. So I'll, I'll end with this. I wasn't able to get my PhD at University of Idaho because I failed. And when I came to AA, I was ashamed of that failure. And a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, his name was Father Dave, he said, Santiago, you're going to get your PhD. I said, I can't afford it. I got two kids. I, I, there's no way I can afford it. He goes, don't you worry about it. I'll take care of it. I'll take care of that first year, then we'll figure out how to get the rest for you. I got my PhD, and it took me a year and a half to get it, and I got it. And because of him, everything that I have, just about everything that I have is because of Alcoholics Anonymous. So here's a story that I want to end with, because it's, it's a great story. <laughs> so I got my PhD. You know, I'm 30, I don't know, seven years old. I'm so proud. Doctor. So I go to pick up my mom. You remember my mother? She's about this tall, my mother is. I adored her, and I hated her. Now I just adore her. I have no hate for her or anybody at this moment, or rarely, thank God. But she's about this tall. So I go pick her up. I go, okay, mama, guess what? She goes, what, mijo? I said, I got a Ph.D., I'm a doctor. Do you make money? <laughs> I go, yeah, I, mean, I do pretty well. Do you make as much money as your brother Victor? I go, no, nobody makes that much money. I don't make that much money. She goes, well, okay. So we go out. I bought her, bought her lunch. Time to come home. I'm taking her home. And she goes, you know what, mijo? I don't feel too good. And I'm, could you, could you buy me some chones? I go, chones, underwear. She wants me to buy her some underwear. I go, yeah, I can buy you some. She goes, you know, I don't know why my stomach doesn't feel good. It reminds me of when I had you. It hurt so much. <laughs> I said, I'll get you the chones, mama. And maybe you get me something else. Whatever you want. Okay, it doesn't hurt as much now. <laughs> so we get to the store. I go, okay, come on, let's go. We'll go buy you whatever you want. She goes, oh, I don't feel good. You go in and you buy them for me. I go, 
What size? This is all in Spanish. My mother didn't speak a whole lot of English, except when she wanted to. <laughs> and uh, she could say like "samarabash," but uh, I won't translate that. Uh, she uh, she goes, "You go in and buy them for me." I go, "Okay. What size do you wear?" I don't know. I just look at them, and I put them on, and they fit, and I, that's how I do it. Well, I said, "How am I going to know what size?" She goes, "Tell the lady." Did you want to bring them out and show them to your mama? Remember how much it hurt me? Remember when you were born? I go, yeah, yeah, okay, okay, okay. So I go in the store. I ask this sales lady, you know, about, tell her about my mom. Can I go out with the chones? I find the widest ones I could find, you know. <laughs> I go out to the car. So I had a VW Beetle with a sunroof, you know, and I'm standing there by the window. Are these okay, mama? And then she goes, so you got a PhD, huh, stupid? <laughs> and I looked at her. And I wanted to just strangle her. <laughs> and I said, yeah, ma, I got a PhD. And I went in and I bought her the chones. And I adore my mother. I adore her. I, I, I love is not a big enough word for what she gave me in my life. If it wasn't for her, I could have gone to prison, kid's prison, but thank God for her. I have nothing but gratitude. I have nothing but love for you and Alcoholics Anonymous, and I know that Alcoholics Anonymous loves me, and I know that that love defies measurement, just like spirit defies measurement. I meditate every morning for a half hour. I meditate every af af afternoon or night for a half hour. I've been doing that for 20 years. I started off by meditating one minute. And now it's a cornerstone of my life. It's a cornerstone of my sobriety. I mention it because it means so much to me. It has allowed my heart, I believe, to open and to be in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous and be kind, to do the best I can to be kind, and to remember that the only requirement to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous is a desire. What genius, what compassion, what love. Those men and the women that created this program, to have that Incredible genius that that's the only requirement to be a member is to have a desire. I love you and I thank you with all my heart. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.